Hello everyone, I'm your host Luke, and this is my co-host. Hey, it's Jared, how are you guys doing? And today we're talking about part three of the mystery of Oak Island. Um, the We're trying to look into the different companies that were that you know predated you know the current dig going on you know that they're documenting in the history channel show and that's the onslow and true row company and we got into some of that at the end of episode two but uh we're going deeper part part of the pun deeper um <laughs> so uh a historian is hoping people in Colchester County can help unearth the history of Oak Island. Danny Henniger, an executive member for the Oak Island Tourism Society, said historical documents such as books and property records connect the island to Onslow and Truro. Onslow was the first one. Uh, the famed island rests 600 feet off the mainland between Mahoney Bay and Chester. Um, uh, Historians have traced its history back to 1795 when one man, Danny McGinnis, from Chester and two teenage boys undertook the first treasure hunt there. It's believed that a man, Simeon Lenz, reportedly from Onslow, spoke with the treasure hunters and formed a company now called the Onslow Company. They sailed 300 miles from Onslow to Oak Island and spent 1804 to 1805 searching for treasure. And when their attempt failed, the next group that came along was the True Row Company of 1849. Uh, from that point, numerous people became interested in the treasure hunter hunt involved. Um, some of the surnames attached to the earliest operations are Harris, Lynns, and Archibald. Henniger hopes residents of Colchester County will help find missing pieces of the story, especially with the two major dig site, you know, companies. He asked residents to search their scrapbooks, historical files, photos, and other memorabilia that could contain long-lost information on Oak Island. The first 40 years of its history is murky, and the $64,000 question as if there's treasure buried there and there are, have been a few obscure coins found there, but supposedly there's something deep underground, no doubt about it. Henniger said if a connection can be proven to Truro Onslow, it would bring notoriety to the local area. I'd say there's all already enough notoriety, you know, especially with the current. Yeah, surrounding the island and yeah. everything, the theories and everything like that. I don't know why he's looking for more or whatever. <laughs> More money, um, more merchandise, things like that. Maybe. Somewhere someone has the information. It's a part of Colchester, and we should know it as accurate as possible. And there's an interest in Oak Island around the world, and it's one of the most common treasure hunts. Um, I guess anybody listening to this, if you want to send... Yeah, I mean, you can look up his... Email if you want to. I'm not going <laughs> to. Go send emails to this poor random man that... Posted something online. Yeah, posted something on the internet. Go do it.
It's all on you, Kelsey. Um, yeah. Okay. It's all up to you now, buddy. Yeah. So let me take it over to Gerard. Yep. So this is the uh, oakislandmoneypit.com. Um, revealing the mystery. If someone were to claim that they uh, knew a story that involved the Holy Grail, a band of pirates, William Shakespeare, Franklin Del Roosevelt, and uh, Ellen, Edgar Allan Poe, you might think the tale was a riddle, a fanciful movie script. However, one particular site in Canada holds a history that brings it all together of all these elements and more. Located off the shores of Nova Scotia along Canada's Atlantic coast, Oak Island is approximately 360 islands dotting or is among approximately 360 islands dotting the Mahoney Bay. To the casual observer, the 140-acre island appears, like many in this part of the province, rocky and sand skirts the perimeter of the landmass, while native forests and brush cover much of its interior. At first glance, it seems mundane island conceals any evidence of the historic importance. However, appearances can be deceiving. Despite the natural scenery and serene setting of Oak Island, the story of this island's past is repel with mystery, intrigue, and even tragedy. Uh, the potency of the story that follows has captured the human imagination and driven men to their graves. From academics to adventurers, many have grappled with trying to explain the mystery, but none have been able to get to the bottom of the muddy pit of Oak Island. So basically it goes back to kind of like the discovery of it in the summer of 1795, when uh, Daniel McGuinness saw the strange lights on the island offshore from his parents' house. According to author Lee Lamb, uh, upon investigating the island uh, for the source of light, McGinnis told a particularly curious depression of approximately 13 feet in diameter on the island's florist floor. Looking around, this, uh, McGinnis observed a number of oak trees surrounding the depression that had been removed. In addition, McGinnis saw that a block and tackle hung from a severed tree limb over a shallow hole. Although some researchers refute the presence of the block and tackle, Whatever he witnessed that day convinced him the scene was worth investigating. McGinnis decided to leave the island to enlist help from two friends, John Smith and Anthony Vaughn. Um, the following day, three teen teenage boys to began enthusiastically excavating the curious site. One of the reasons McGinnis, Smith, and Vaughn were so excited to investigate a dirt depression on an otherwise nondescript island in eastern Canada can be found in an enticing chapter in the Nova Scotia's history. As described by the Maritime Museum of, of the Atlantic, the golden age of piracy occurred between 19, or 1690 and 1730. At this time, Nova Scotia had only a few European settlements, with just over 200 nautical miles separating the remote bays of present-day Nova Scotia from the th thriving commercial center of uh, colonial Boston. Pirates were known to frequent the area near Oak Island, the unpopulated wilderness of the region provided an abundance of natural resources to restock and repair vessels, while its isolation <coughs> provided an ideal harbor for their vast, uh, misbegotten treasure. In fact, one of those no notorious pirates, the infamous uh, Captain William Kidd, admitted uh, to burying an unspecified wealth of treasure in the area before his capture in 19, uh, six, 1699. So this goes back to the companies you're talking about in the initial excavation. Right. I mean, the main thing that stuck out to me from that, besides what we've already covered, was that mentioned the mysterious lights, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which... So it could have been like you No, know, since me being a UFO nut... Oh, here know. he goes. <laughs> no, like, that's one of the ones, is that it's like a... There were, like, three circling lights. Yeah. And that's what caused the depression that he found. At least that's what he thinks. Right. 
Um, so, do you want to read the initial excavation? Um, what? Why don't you? Or, or do you want to read the Onslow Company? <coughs> yeah, I'll do the initial excavation. Go for it. So, along with many residents in the eastern province, the three boys digging on Oak Island must have been aware of the pirates and had notions of uh, treasure in mind. It wasn't long before the young excavators came across buried evidence to further uh, convince their imaginations. Uh, we've already covered this. Um, so... team eagerly continued their effort removing the timbers to claim their treasure just as before the excavators were again disappointed after taking out the tree barrier the boys found a two-foot pocket of air followed by soil that had settled below can that form underground like it's just a hollow yeah that's a single kind of form wow that's it's because the water creates a gap in the soil as it erodes and then it slowly falls down. Because I guess the air didn't have anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. So the the heavy the the weight of the sand started forming that depression. Um, but that could be caused by water. It could be caused by a, a formation underground. It could be caused by people digging there and not filling it in properly. Um, McGinnis and his friends carried on undeterred, tunneling down to approximately twenty feet. The boys encounter another level of wood timbers. Nevertheless, they continue toiling in the pit, removing one barrier after another. And when they pulled away the second platform of wood timbers, only to find another layer of soil staring back at them, the team decided to suspend their work at the site. I mean, <laughs> this would be really, like, I've hated digging holes in my life. It's just... Uh, it's very laborious. Yeah. And, you know, like, I always hit, like, a rock, you know. <laughs> that would be your luck. Yeah. Um, several weeks later, the young fortune seekers returned to the pit with their pickaxes and shovels. However, the second attempt came up about the same. After hours of laboring beneath the hot sun, removing ten more feet of dirt, they were once again confronted by a table of thick timbers embedded in the clay of the tunnel wall. And McGinnis and his companions continued down five more feet before defeat set in and the boys stopped their treasure hunt. Mm. How? I mean, what I'm imagining with these timber things that they supposedly saw was like... You know almost like a fence yeah where like it was just like two cross beams and then like they laid flat flat timbers on top of them. on top of it to like i guess support the soil yeah i maybe i don't know yeah no. that's Why? my best guess yeah and then uh the onslow company comes in although the first attempt proved fr fruitless the legend of oakland money pit still had many secrets to reveal 
Perhaps too convinced of the treasure to give up pursuit, the eldest of the excavators, John Smith, purchased a, a lot containing the intriguing cavernous pit um, that same month. However, interest in the particular hole was not limited to the teenager McGinnis, Bond, and Smith. In fact, more mature and experienced minds would soon succumb to the prospect of wealth contained in those shadowy depths. According to Harris, in 1803, uh, Simeon Lind joined the excursion, and Lind was a grandson of a pioneering family from Ireland who settled in Nova Scotia in 1761. Simeon's father, Thomas Lind, fell in love and married Simeon's mother, Rebecca Blair, in 1774. Rebecca was the fifth daughter of Captain William Blair, a Scottish immigrant who had moved his family from north from England to help suppress the French forces at Louisbourg. Perhaps it was his maternal grandfather uh, daring uh, nature coursing through his veins when in 1803 the Pitts discoverer uh, convinced Simon Linz to continue the hunt. Linz was a relative of the Vaughn family and was listed as a wheelwright in historical records. To assist with his new adventure, Linz en uh, enlisted the help of Co uh, Colonel uh, Robert Archbold, uh, Captain David Archbold, and Sheriff Thomas, Sheriff Thomas Harry Harris. Together, the group established the Onslow Company, a professional venture with the sole purpose of recovering the Oak Island treasure. The renewed effort began in earnest in the summer of 1804. That year, the team returned to the pit for what they hoped would be the third and final attempt to uncover the supposed riches. Lynn and his men started removing backfill from the initial excavation. Uh, just as the first team indicated, the Onslow Company noticed marks in the clay walls nearly every 10 feet where the wooden timbers had been removed. After the first 25 feet, the excavators found themselves in unexplored territory. From this point, every shovel came with the promise of discovery. At the depth of 30 feet, uh, one la uh, laborer hit a rock-solid object. Removing the soil, the crew found that the, another timber level had been installed inside the tunnel. This time, however, the men noticed that there remains of charcoal scattered around the platform. Baffled, the crew disposed of the wooden barrier and continued their search, digging 10 more feet. The enthusiastic men of the Onslow Company found themselves standing on yet another shelf of horizontal timbers. This time, rather than charcoal, the diggers observed a sap-like substance along the seams between the logs. Whatever uh, was stored behind, uh, beneath must have been worth the trouble of encapsulating the tunnel for protection. The men resumed their efforts, encouraged by the added element of charcoal and sealant. But burrowing another 10 feet, the team encountered something they would have never thought possible. Atop another platform of timbers were scattered fibers of coconut shells. To the men, this development seemed to underscore the importance of their efforts. Although coconut fibers themselves held no commercial value, there are two reasons the Onslow Company crew considered the debris reassuring. First, as it could be assumed, coconuts are not native to Canada. Most likely source of this tropical fiber would have been somewhere in the Caribbean. Second, the reason the material probably came from the Caribbean was that in a, long, uh, in a time of long voyage on the high sea, coconut fibers were used to secure and protect valuable cargo. The matted brown fiber could mean a horde of precious goods was stashed deeper within the pit. The men wasted no time in dispatching the floor to claim their bounty. To their dismay, the pit was not yet ready to reward the ancient treasure hunters. From the 60-foot depth where the coconut fibers were found, it would take the men another 30 feet of digging and removal of two additional timber barriers before they would make a significant discovery. There at the depth of 90 feet, Beneath the surface of uh, the tiny Canadian island, the weary team of fortune seekers uncovered their first precious stone. What the men's, men found uh, was not a diamond nor a gem, but a large square-cut stone tablet. On the face of the heavy stone was an inscription of the strange symbols. Each character 
of the mysterious text consists, uh, consisted of a unique combination of lines, arrows, and dots. Despite its significant weight, the crow, crew hosted the rock from the pit <coughs> for further examination. For decades, the encoded message on the face of the rock was thought to be indecipherable. During this time, it was rumored that Smith used it as a fire back in his fireplace, while others claimed it was a doorstep to Hal Fox's bookbinder shop, or possibly even displayed in the window as an enticement to potential expedition financiers. Although it wasn't until the 1860s that an academic was uh, able to examine the symbols and provide a credible translation, although this fact, like many involving Oak Island, remains disputed. Many believe that the Dolly House University professional, uh, professor of language, James Litchie, successfully decoded the tablet's inscription, borrowing a page from uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Golden Bug. Lynch employed a technique termed simple substitution cipher, whereby unique symbols co uh, correlate to specific letters in a given alphabet. For example, three vertical lines uh, might substitute for the letter E. Once a rational scheme is set for the symbols presented in a code, a context for each letter can be constructed and meaning is extracted from the text. Applying this approach to the cryptography, Lynch uh, resolved the stone from the money pit. And they, um, and, uh, they basically thought it read... Uh, what was that, like 90 feet down or something like that? 40 feet below, 2 million pounds are buried. Oh, yeah, there it is. Um, since the stone tablet was discovered 90 <coughs> feet below the ground, excavators subscribing to Lich's translation set their uh, sights on a depth of 130 feet. Given the verbiage used in the text, members of the school also believed the treasure to have been buried by someone of British origin with a flair for the eccentric. To those who hold dearly to the legend of pirates and their ties to buried gold, Captain Kidd seems like a pretty likely candidate to construct the ladder pit and create the myster mysterious stone. With the stone pit out of their with the stone out of the path, the men of the Onslow Company resumed the excavation, expecting to dig ten more feet before hitting another timber structure. The team was surprised when, at a depth of ninety-eight feet, they found the next wooden obstacle. At that point, the men were exhausted from a strenuous day. The workers decided to make one last. A curious effort attempt before resting. Rather than go through the effort of removing the logs, one of the workers used a crowbar to probe between the timbers to ensure the treasure was not immediately below the peat, the, their feet. The metal rod pierced the sealed sim, seams between the two timbers to feel for any potential valuable objects. With no evidence of impending fortune, the team retired for the day. When the members of the Onslow Company returned to the site, they found themselves confronted by another unexpected challenge. It turns out that while the team took time to rest, much of the cavernous pit had been filled with water. Now, the prospect of retrieving any sorts of riches need laid nearly 63 feet beneath a watery chamber. The crew uh, startled, or the startled crew desperately began filling buckets to drain the pit. Feverishly, they scooped away at the cloudy water without success. It soon occurred to the hapless crew that every time water was removed from the well, it was somehow instantly replaced. Colonel Robert Archibald noted this particular situation and temporarily seized operations at the site. The Onslow Company promptly realized the sophistication of the pit would require more than brute force to burrow past the levels of dirt and timber. Somehow the tunnels had been engineered to toy with men as they sought her fortune. Staring into a well that could hold unfathomable fortunes, the members of the Onslow Company refused to admit defeat. Instead, in autumn of 1804, the group decided to employ technology to overcome the pit's defiance. To this end, they hired Mr. Carl Moschner, a mechanical pump, and a, his mechanical pump to clear the tunnel and allow the men to resume the work. Immediately after Moschner installed and operated the pump, the company appeared to have finally earned a streak of luck. 
The water level slowly began to recede down the clay wall, perhaps the water, a minor stumbling block that would only serve to rinse the gold coins before their retrieval. Then, at the depth of approximately 90 feet, just eight feet shy of where they previously left off, Mosher's water pump failed, along with the excavation's short-lived fortune. Without the pump functioning, the water steadily returned to the pit, dissolving the crew's hopes for a hasty solution. The, group, the team decided to retreat and regroup. But the following year, the Onslow Company returned to the pit with a new idea to capture the treasure. Despite the first two attempts depleting much of the company's financial resources, the men believed this new approach would uh, more than pay for their past failures. Rather than concentrating on the pit itself, the 1805 Onslow Company determined that they could bypass all the tunnel snares by simply avoiding the pit altogether. They revised the strategy, including excavating a shaft parallel to the pit, about 110 feet. Once the men were beneath the supposed water trap, they would tunnel uh, over towards the pit to collect the treasure and return to the surface. The crew would be back on the main island, celebrating their newfound wealth. In a matter of weeks, this, uh, the site of the auxiliary tunnel was situated 14 feet southeast of the original hole. Eagerly, the men set to work, their shovels flinging dirt from the promising new shaft. It was not long, however, before the promise faded to uh, disillusionment at the depth of just 12 feet. 12 feet. The water found its way into the new tunnel. With dampening spirits and finances drained, the Onslow Company was finally forced to accept defeat. So, so that, that is the story of that. So I think it's important to also mention like what was available at the time. What was that, 18... 1807. So I looked this up and water pumps have been around since the time of the ancient Egyptians. Oh yeah. So like, uh, <laughs> like, you know how they mentioned that they were just using buckets? Yeah. Um, so I'd like to go over some of those. Um, go for it. In 2000 BC, uh, Egyptians invented the S-H-A-D-O-O-F to raise water. It uses a long suspended rod with a bucket at one end and a weight at the other. Um, in 200 BC, Archimedes made a screw pump that was considered one of the greatest inventions of all time and it is still in use today for pumping liquids and granulated solids in both the industrialized world and in the third world, where it is a preferred way to irrigate agricultural field without electrical pumps. And then we jump all the way to 1475. Um, according to Reddy, um, a Brazilian sh soldier invented a machine that could be characterized as a centrifugal pump that was a mud-lifting machine that appeared in a treatise by the Italian Renaissance engineer uh, Francisco di Giorgio Martini. Um, but I also want to jump to like the 1700s. Um, a French-born inventor, Dennis Papin, developed the first true centrifuge pump that had uh, straight veins that were used for local drainage but um okay so this is the closest to um 
1807, that in 1790, a Brighton Thomas Simpson used steam power oh, to cool. pumping engines for municipal water applications and founded the London Company, Simpson and Thomas Company. The modern screw pump wasn't invented till 1830, you know, which could have been used by the Truro Company because I was yeah. 1845. Yeah. And a, uh, a screw water pump is a, um, Oh, I, I get how it works. So, <coughs> imagine like a cylinder, Jared. Yeah. And um, part of it is underwater, and it, it has like a screw in it, and you... Just crank it. Yeah, you crank it, and it slowly... Pulls the water yeah, out. Yeah, pulls the water out. So, like... It's like a slushy machine. Right. It's exact, pretty much the exact same way like a... You'd see at like like a gas they, station slushy machine where it like spins with that right. circular screw. Yeah, that's just turned on its side. Yeah. This is, I guess you could turn it. Any this is at like a 45 degree angle, but. Yeah. But it's the same conceptualization. So. Maybe you could do it like just straight up. Probably. Yeah. Maybe. Um, so now going on to the True Row Company. Um, Following the Onslow expedition, the site on Oak Island lay undisturbed um, for nearly 40 years. And then in 1845, uh, fervor for the entombed mystery was reawakened. Um, so I'd just like to reiterate that, you know, what whatever might have been under there, Jared, Yeah. with this tunnel flooded for 40 years yeah i mean think of all the Bad erosion um water damage i mean if they any... conveniently leave out that part on the curse of oak island true you know they never they never mention like all the like I think it's the Truro Company that where they say they like punctured the side of this, I guess, big box that's buried, you know, 140 feet down or whatever. Yeah. And when all the water just go flooding in, you know, like, <laughs> let's say it's Shakespeare's hidden manuscripts, they'd be ruined. Yeah, unless they found a way to waterproof them. In the 1500s? That's why. That's why they use the sap on the on the on the on the. Levels. Okay, but maybe the parchment would still be damaged. Who knows? Right, but do you get what I'm saying? Like, there's wa water erodes almost anything. Eventually, given enough time. Right. Um. So that year of 1845, Anthony Vaughn helped form the Truro Company. And together with John Gamble, Adams Tupper, Robert Creelman, 
Jotham McCauley. That's a unique name. And James Pitt Blado. The treasure-seeking Vaughn anticipates success. Also, during the Truro Company efforts was the brother of the Onslow Company's Simeon Lenz and Dr. David Barnes Lenz. With this team, the Truro Syndicate represented an impressive collection of qualified and respected individuals. In spite of this ambition, uh, the men did not start excavating until 1849. With improved funding and organization, the Truro Company began the fourth attempt at solving the Oak Island mystery. And in the summer of 1849, the team arrived at the site and continued where the other company left off, removing water from the pit. After two weeks of laboring against the debris and water of the pit, the crew achieved a depth of 86 feet. You know, they they mentioned the debris in that. They so, like, you know, <laughs> there's probably there were probably tools and you know lumber and. Just a bunch of other dirt, you know, just a bunch of trash. Um, so they went down to a depth of 86 feet, and these gains, however, did not last. The next day, workers uh, came to find that the surface of the water had returned to 60 feet. Um, so these people were more prepared than their predecessors, and the True Row Company. Uh, fashioned a wood platform that they mounted over the mouth of the pit and through an opening in the floor of the structure, the men plunged a hand-operated auger into the waters below. They hoped this contraption would give them an idea of what was buried beyond the 98-foot deep timber floor. The results of the remote probing could not have been anticipated anticipated by even the most optimistic among them. According to Kruger, Kruger, um, the auger initially only confirmed information the men already knew. At a depth of about 98 feet, the auger came in contact with a layer of spruce, approximately six inches deep, and following the surface, The auger sunk through one foot absent of any material, and this was consistent with Vaughn's past experiences with the pit. After every wooden platform, excavators found a pocket of air from dirt that had settled below. To Vaughn and the others, it would follow that another nine feet, the auger would again reach a wood surface and repeat the process. Surprisingly, the hound-powered drill delivered very different results. I mean, what what would the bit have been back then? Would it have just been steel? Probably, like a steel bit. Yeah. So, like... Steel auger bit. Probably wasn't... <laughs> probably wasn't the best. Beneath yeah. the layer of settled dirt, the Truro Company noticed that the auger then penetrated a series of strata consisting of four inches of oak, followed by six inches of spruce before entering seven feet of clay. To the crew, the oak and spruce represented more than just a new configuration of wood platforms. Um, They anticipated that this could finally be a chest containing the riches they sought. Because this would have been at like 
what, well below 100 feet yeah. at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, when the operators withdrew their probe from the pit, uh, they claim that they found three small links of gold chain. So to me, that means you're that like, that's when they punctured the treasure, the money box, pit. pit, whatever you want to call it. Treasure chest, I don't know. Um, between the wooden object buried beneath the timbers and the metal retrieved by the auger, the men were certain of their victory. Bolstered by the success of their initial drilling, they sent the auger down for another attempt, and this time the probe was cast to 114 feet beneath the surface. And at this depth, the auger hit another platform of timbers, because why not? <laughs> at this point, it's well, just wouldn't it? whoever put this just loved timber building and digging timbers. Um, Imagine how much man well, would take just I, to dig down to like, like I really subscribe to the idea where they like sectioned out a part of the beach, mm-hmm. you know, because then they were able to go at it from the side. Because remember these water tunnels that have been the main problem yeah they keep refilling the pit those are man-made yeah like there's no question about that yeah um so the probe went to 114 feet and at this depth it had another platform of timbers and it did produce more it did find more oak and coconut fibers with the exception of gold coins, the drilling had produced convincing proof that some sort of catch lied. Cachet. Yeah, cachet lie buried below. And it wasn't gold coins, it was gold chains. Yeah, it was like gold chains. I don't know why they said coins, but... Um, so according to Lamb, the Truro company, James Pitt Blotto, did something very peculiar following the fork drilling. And as the auger brought materials to the surface... Oh, so it must have been, like, there must have been... It must have been slowly coming over. Yeah, slowly. Man, that must have been a big drill. Yeah. Because, dude, they're 100 feet down at this 114, point. 114, yeah. I mean, unless they're, like, maybe it's, like, 15 feet, and then, it, like, they just bring it back up. Maybe. Because yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't this have been... Would this have been steam-operated or hand-operated? Probably steam at this point, at 1870. Because hand, I feel, would have been pretty hard to get through all that stuff. Yeah, so it was 1845. Right. So it's definitely definitely steam, if not steam hand. Yeah. Um, So the other crew members witnessed Pit Blotto uh, wipe dirt off an object before discreetly slipping the item into his pocket. And several accounts of the event indicate that immediately after this episode, he left the island and relinquished all ties to the true real It's like, oh, I found this. Bye. Peace. Yeah. Maybe it's something that scared him. I mean, you you could interpret it. However. Yeah, however, right? Whether it was good or bad. True. Um, Although Pit Blotto... Disappeared that day. He would not be absent from the narrative for long. Whatever he pocketed from the drilling debris inspired him to petition the provincial authorities for a license to conduct his own expedition 
on the island. To help back his venture, he convinced a lawyer and recognized businessman, Charles Dickinson, Dixon Archibald, to join him. And the only official privilege that they were granted by the government was the right to continue their search for on quote, ungranted and unoccupied lands. Essentially, the splintered group of fortune hunters could seek only property, treasure, not already deeded to a private owner. The restriction barred the men from exploring the money pit, and after a rejected attempt to purchase the lot containing the pit, they were forced to leave the finding of the riches to the Truro Company. So why didn't he just rejoin them? I mean... What, what did he find down there? I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. Does that make any sense to you? Like, if I was him, I would have just been like, "Oh, I can't buy the land." Okay, I'll just rejoin you guys. You know, yeah. like he didn't he didn't piss them off or anything. He just left. Yeah, he just left. Maybe, he's, maybe what he saw was very valuable, and he didn't want to split it with them, and he wanted it for himself. Maybe. I yeah. Know. Well, I mean it. Sounds like he got away scot-free with whatever he found. Yeah. It kept. Archibald eventually re retired to England with the pit blotto and his unknown trophy disappeared into the fog of history. Um, so then the men, later on in 1849, they left the site for the season. And when they returned in the summer of 1850, they brought with them a new sense of purpose and a refined strategy <laughs> to extract the wealth. Uh, compared to the onslaught company's second effort, they devised a plan that would descend a shaft parallel to the original tunnel. At a depth of 109 feet, the new tunnel would burrow horizontally, thereby entering the money pit, and a daring spelunker would then collect the coffers and return to the surface to celebrate, and as could be expected, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> <laughs> so similar to previous attempts before the adjacent access shaft could reach the intended depth the new tunnel filled with water oh, no. i mean big surprise yeah. right yeah well not the result the crew had intended the episode did offer an important discovery as they worked to drain the deluge um first they found it was salt water and second uh the level of the water rose and fell with the tide Although simple, these observations had profound implications. Previously, the company thought the money pit was being inundated with water as part of a complicated trap or as a result of the natural water table. Now the team knew that somehow it was the surrounding sea that flooded their excavations. Do you think it's possible that seawater could enter the pit? naturally you know from like years of erosion depends on the type of soil right they're what they've said is it's like clay um yes uh, yeah i think so i think clay is pretty good at retaining water yeah not retaining but like um allowing water through right so there's like they from what i've watched of the show jared is like there's not they kind of want you to forget, like, that, you know, these other companies went at this pretty hardcore, and they didn't find anything. Yeah. Or they found barely anything. Very and, like, you know, they're pro they probably, 
you've at least watched some of these episodes, right? I mean, nope. they none. Nope. Oh, okay. My uncle has, and he's told yeah. me a lot about but, it. But okay, so you've at least heard about it. Yeah. But like every episode, they make it sound like they found some major important discovery. It's just more nonsense. Nonsense. Well, that's the point: is to keep keep the viewers hooked, right? So continually watching, right? So it's about the I viewership. Mean, Every season finale, it's like, oh, this time they found something. They're really close. You know? Like, I, one thing I love about this show is they, like, they like having a base of operations. And, yeah. like, you know, they're sitting around this table, and, you know, they're like, okay, guys, what are we going to do today? Like and it's like, scheming. it's like, what, dig more? Find another wooden piece of wooden timber. Let's pump out some more water today, guys. Yeah, I mean, what what is there to plan? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just being, I guess, realistic. Um, so equipped with that new knowledge, the Truro Company investigated the area for more clues. And as though a bell had been lifted, the men discovered that a por southern portion of the island shore was actually man-made. That, that, that's what I meant, Jared, is, you know, like, there is at least evidence that There's somebody something. was here in the 1600s, the 1700s, before Daniel McGinnis found, it. found that depression. Um, the company decided to build a temporary rock dam in Smith's Cove to see if the key to the mystery could be found outside the actual tunnel. So, like, to link that to what they what they did this time, Jared, because yeah. that's where the seawater is coming in. Yeah, they see think. the tunnel. And don't um, they think what like what they did is they tunnel? shoved these, I mean, to me, they look like corrugated metal roofing sheets. God, they must have been like 50 feet long or something. And they just, you know, like, imagine like a half crescent. Yeah. And um, they shoved them into the soil to make like, and it stopped the water from coming in. Hmm. Like, it's kind of weird, but, like, on one episode, I remember they, like, um, actually hired a diver to, and, and they sent him down. Oh, I couldn't do that. I'm sorry, because, like, you know, the pit's, like, like this. Yeah, it's you know, narrow. It's, like, probably seven feet in diameter. Yeah. You know, and we're using modern-day equipment. You know, it's not like steam powered or hand, you know, like if you, you got to give them one thing, they're willing, they're putting their money where they're Yeah, they're walking the walk, you know, they're yeah. not just talking the talk because you can tell they're sinking millions of dollars into this, Yeah, you know, like they're finding stuff here and there, but you know, at least like you said, they're putting their money where their mouth is. True. Um, you know, I, I, I hope they find something. You know, like I, I'm not. Cool. Yeah, I'm not. Like with this series, I'm not saying like, oh, they're you know, screw them. You know, I'm. I hope they find something. I'm interested in what they find, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. trying to be realistic and say, well, you know, there's been what forty digs there. Something like that. I'm not sure. I just. I'm sorry, but I assume they're just going to find the trash from the other dig sites yeah. that they left there because they were bankrupt, didn't find anything, and they're like, 
F it, let's go home. And that's what they're pulling up. I mean, they like get all excited when they find like a, they pull up, a, you know, they have like these bags and then like they cut them open to, you know, they find dirt and, you know, they use like a metal detector and whatnot. And they, they get all excited when they find like a wood timber, which big surprise, Every there's all this timber down there from the excavation tunnels, you know. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I guess if they found more coconut fiber, that'd be cool. Yeah, that'd but, be interesting. Um, tracing the vents back to shore, the people tried to determine whether the shafts converged into one before continuing inland toward the pit. Here, their suspicions were confirmed. In order to drain the money pit, the team would either have to empty the Atlantic Ocean or obstruct the feeder vent that connected the five shafts to the tunnel. And, you know, that's what they did in the show. With those, um, like, uh, big corrugated metal pieces. Right. Like, I'm not sure how... You know, they, they have, like, these graphics that, you know, show what, show what they're doing. But it did cut off those seawater. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so they chose the ladder after two attempts to find the feeder vent. The crew succeeded in wedged wood pil pylons into the shaft to prevent further flooding. And thinking they could now remove the water and claim any treasure, the men were puzzled to find their... Despite their best efforts, the water level refused to lower, and they ultimately broke camp and left empty-handed from the 1850 expedition. Um, so, Bandit. broke and broken-hearted, they disbanded the following year. So, the Truro Company, what, only lasted two years? Uh, no. Five. Five years. Yeah, 1845. Yeah, yeah it's 1850. Yeah. So they were at it for five years. So, the Oak Island Association. Yes, sir. In spring of 1861. So this is uh, 11 years after. Yeah, I, I mean, Chiro. one thing I want to harp on again is, like, as this goes on, they get more and more successful at it because the technology improved. That and they learned from the other experts. Right, because it was well documented at that point. Yep. The next group of hopeful treasure hunters was formed. Um, they were named Oak Island Association under the agreement uh, to give the property owner, Anthony Gravel, one-third of all findings. The group began to work at the money pit. At first, the men of the new gen expedition found the task to be an easier challenge than expected. They soon had cleared the main tunnel down to 88 feet and had excavated two parallel tunnels to 118 and 120 feet with no signs of flooding. The 118-foot shaft was dug 18 feet west of the money pit. The plan was, at that depth, the excavators would began tunneling east to access the entombed loot. However, one foot from the penetrating the money pit, the water flooded the access tunnel. With so little earth between them and the promised treasure, the Oak Island Association utilized a pumping gin uh, to clear the watery path. After three desperate days of trying to drain the shaft with no results, the company turned their efforts towards the other access tunnel 25 feet away from the money pit. Already at a depth of 120 feet with no signs of water, the crew determined to bury, burrow horizontally from this new direction. Here again, the main chamber just feet away. The second access tunnel was inundated with water. For two days, the 63 men of the company struggled to dredge all the shaft with no avail. Down, but not out, the team decided to send surveyors into one of the access tunnels in an effort to assess the cause of the flooding. Two men labored in the shaft. Those above ground heard such a loud crash. The thankful surveyors made it out alive as the water began rushing into the tunnel. 
With everyone safely at the surface, the crew heard another alarm, uh, startling sound. This time, it was a money pit causing the commotion. According to Harris, the, uh, beneath the weight of the oncoming water, the timber installed to support the sides of the money pit collapsed. Everywhere below 30 feet from the opening, along with partial wall collapses, further inspection revealed that the bottom of the tunnel had also given way. The depth of the new hole now stood approximately 112 feet. Um, although startling, no one was injured during the event. On the contrary, um, this may have helped heal the concerns of, of the team. As it turned out, when the floor of the money pit failed during the flood, pieces of debris from below washed upwards through the murky water. When the men inspected the scene, they discovered several curious items, including the bottom of a yellow dish, a piece of uh, juniper uh, worked at, the, at either end of the wood, and an oak timber and a spruce slab scarred uh, by the hole left um, by a drilling auger. Here, let, let me look where juniper trees are from. Yeah. So, uh, so juniper trees are diverse um, between 50 and 70 subspecies. Um, they are native to several regions throughout the world, including North America, Africa, Central America, and Asia. And these are evergreens that can reach as high as 130 feet tall. Um, and yeah, they're, they're just a kind of cedar. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. So the first island tra tra tragedy, bah, 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 can't speak today. As the 1861 digging season moved forward, the Oak Island Association remained steadfast in their uh, efforts, perhaps encouraged by the debris. The men installed a cast iron pump st and steam engine to dispatch the water in the pit. Although plumbing operations on Oak Island had become a standard practice for teams of treasure hunters, this particular attempt would have a lasting impression on the hopeful crew. In fall of 1861, as the company struggled to drain the tunnel, a boiler exploded, fatally scalding, uh, scalding one operator and injuring several others. The fatality represented the first death inflicted by the money pit. To the regret of many, it would not be the last. Despite the tragedy, the men at Oak Island uh, Association returned to the site over the next four years. Following the incident, much of the group's efforts involved locating and obstructing the feeding tunnels from the Smith Cove, thought to be responsible for the flooding. Although these attempts also failed to produce results, there is no further loss of life among the ranks of the Oak Island Association. In 1866, the company relinquished its rights to search for the treasure at the site, ending a costly, tragic campaign on the Oak I narrative. It's just, it, it, it's almost hilarious to me because it's just attempt after attempt that, <laughs> you know, they, they think they're getting somewhere and they just aren't. Whoops. <laughs> I guess we're not. Yeah. Like if a steam engine blew up right next to me, I would go home, you know? Um, so, next we go on to more terrible attempts. Uh, ineffective attempts by treasure hunters persisted for much of the 19th century, with little more than mounting debt and sinking hopes to show for the investment. Then in 1890, excitement for the enigmatic tunnel was reignited when one and a half ounce copper coin was discovered on the island. Um, 
Although the copper piece was found outside of the money pit, uh, this, to many observers though, served as yet another testament to the wealth buried below. Energized by the new potential, in 1893, Frederick Blair and S.C. Fraser incorporated the Oak Island Treasure Company into the state of Maine, and under a 30000 lease agreement, $3,000, the organization secured exclusive rights to all treasure discovered on the property for a period of three years. Um, so despite their enthusiasm, they proved, their efforts proved despairing from the start. Initially, when the Fledgling Association met in Truro to appoint officer positions and generate revenue, the group was unable to raise enough capital to cover the purchase of even a water pump. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. not good. I mean, without a water pump in Oak Island, you're... Dead in the water. Yeah, you're dead in the water. But it's... Probably burned. Um, initially, when the... <laughs> so, without this piece of equipment, the company could scarcely be able to move forward with the expedition. And regardless, the group decided to take aggressive action and began a deliberate excavation in 1895. Fortunately for the crew, they had been laboring unknowingly within one of the auxiliary access tunnels 10 feet northwest of the money pit itself. So, see what, what I mean? Is like all this just keeps getting more and more confusing as time goes on. And they're like, where even is the money pit? Yeah. I mean, there's so much trash and debris and timbers and shit on the island that. It's hard to make. Yeah. We're, are we even sure where McGinnis saw the depression? I mean. We're going off legends, you know, and not everybody operates by history channel laws where hearsay and legends is just taken at face value, you know, that yeah. doesn't, that isn't science, that isn't, you know, logic, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the... The team had dug down to 55 feet before the chamber was inundated with water and work was interrupted. I mean, I mean, I'm glad no one died. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty bad, right? Like, you're just digging away and then, oh, look, the tunnel's flooding again. Let's go home. You know, <laughs> like, I'd leave. I'd say, screw this. Uh So, <laughs> several months later, the Oak Island Treasure Company was confronted by additional difficulties. And in September of 1895, the AG of Nova Scotia informed Frederick Blair that, in spite of the lease agreement, any treasure acquired as a result of their expedition belonged to the Queen. <laughs> what? <laughs> Presented by the provincial government. Um... And to encourage continued digging, officials of Nova Scotia agreed to claim only a portion of the riches recovered from the island. Um, so the following year, with the assistance of a new pump, 
company returned to Oak Island. However, this attempt proved uneventful. When at a depth of 70 feet, the pump failed to keep up the water flow and work was suspended. However, the trend toward the mundane was abandoned in 1897 when tragedy again hit. On March 26th of that year, a man named Maynard Kaiser was working in one of the many shafts drilled into the terrain. As he was being hoisted to the surface, the ascension rope snapped, Ooh. Ca casting him back to the shaft to his death. Well, it slipped off the pulley. Right. He so, did, so, so did he like hit the water and then he drowned, maybe? He probably hit the side of the uh, tunnel of, of the tunnel on his way down and got knocked out and maybe drowned. Right. Um, so following the accident, several crew members felt convinced that the treasure was cursed or protected by a malevolent spirit and refused to descend into the money pit, which, yeah, if one of my friends died, I'd be like, uh, F this, I'm out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bye. Peace. Um, so once again, in June of 1897, the Oak Island Treasure Company again tried their luck at acquiring the presumed fortune. And after only moderate success in draining the money pit, the team followed the lead of their predecessors and relied on drilling to uncover what was buried below. And uh, so according to Lamb, the team first drilled down 126 feet, countering a five inch layer of oak before getting an impenetrable iron surface you know, in the chest. The men moved their drill one foot from the initial hole and executed a second attempt here the auger passed through layers of soft stone, oak, and a deposit that seemed to consist of loose pieces of metal. So once again, their drill must have been pretty dang strong. Yeah. You know, um, encouraged by the results, the team sent the drill back down in the same borehole and a depth of approximately 150 yeah, 50, feet. 50. I mean, how long is this, Jared? It's yeah. only 1900. I mean, yeah. this had to be one continuous piece you know like i'm not imagining like modern day equipment you know well usually I'm what they do is they just link it together right so there's a bunch of linked parts it's right like one long but piece of you gotta admit that's pretty impressive for 1900 yeah true you know 153 feet down yeah true um so they came in contact with what the team perceived to be loose metal beneath the supposed metal the auger carrying the same iron barrier it could not descend further when it returned to the surface and the team examined the boring extracted from the pit. Um, the men only found pieces of coconut fiber, oak splinters, and loose debris. You know, trash from the other shit. At first, this appeared to be no different from previous attempts, but however, upon closer examination, the debris pulled from the tunnel that day would ultimately invite the other conspiracy theories. Um, so, the... Debris was transported to a courthouse in Amherst, and there a doctor, A.E. Porter, subjected the materials to closer examination. Um, amongst the dirt and rubble, he found an unmistakable piece of parchment, parchment further distinguishing the fragment. There appeared to be the letters V.I. written on one side of the material, and at Harvard University, they verified its authenticity that it said that. Is uh, five sixteenths right. of an inch long, so it wasn't um, very long. So I'm not sure if we're gonna do a part four. I kind of want to because we still have half a page to go. Because I find this interesting. Yeah, it but, is. But um, uh, 
I hate to end it there, but we've got to go. This has been your host, Luke. Your co-host, Jared. My co-host, Jared. Uh, thank you guys for joining us on this journey. We'll probably do a part four. Um, <laughs> I don't want to do this for every segment, but this is interesting to me. Uh, hope you have a good night. Peace.